Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Coast to Coast podcast. My name is Kyle. And I'm Misha. And today we're going to be talking about episodes seven and eight of The Last Dance, basically the penultimate weekend of this long series of Michael Jordan documentaries that we've had over the past couple weeks. Uh, but before we dive into that, I did want to recognize a milestone that I think is worthy of some recognition and announcement here for anyone who might be listening. And that is that Kyle uh, built and bought a new house. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. So I, I so, did do that. Um, yeah. It was something I've always, I've kind of wanted to do for a while. Um, unfortunately, after college, I kind of moved a couple times. I think I moved, you know, three different places within like the last four years or so. Yeah, you've been all over the place. Yeah, so now that I'm finally in a place where I have a little bit more um, stability with not only my job, but um, my, I guess my life, which big thanks to my job, um, I want to just own something. You know, I, I see myself being where I am now for, you know, at least five to eight years and owning something you know, having building that equity to be able to maybe sell it later in the future or to keep it at like a rental property. Um, I think that's a good decision that I was going back and forth with. Um, because you know, with renting, it's nice, it's convenient. You kind of have, you're only there for a year. You're not obligated to be there any longer. Um, most of the time maintenance is taken care of for you. However, you know, um, it's the same thing because I lease a lot of the cars that I have at the end of your term. Like you have nothing to show for it. So with actually owning something, it kind of gives you that sense of ownership. And, um, you know, the more you pay it off, the more money you can make when you sell it. Yeah. And I think that sense of ownership is really cool. And that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I'm proud of you and happy for Thank this you. big step in your life. Yeah, thank you, thank you. I know buying a home in your in your area is a lot different than buying a home in my area. Yeah, um, it's a very very different set of circumstances. Um, you know, depending on where you live, but San Francisco Bay Area is definitely one of those areas where it's a lot harder to realize those types of dreams. Um, but that's kind of the what comes with the territory of economic opportunity and all of kind of the exciting things that are happening out here. Um, but mm -hmm. It, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a different set of circumstances for different people. I mean, I, I if I'm staying out in this area, I'm going to be living in apartments for the foreseeable future. So, um, but actually, ironically, the place that we just moved into a few months ago is a house in San Francisco, but we're renting it. So there's not that sense of ownership like you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Well, even aside from that, um, you know, if buying something here wasn't necessarily going to work out then I at least wanted to rent a home um, I just kind of got away from that apartment living where you have you know someone on all sides of you and it's usually a little bit smaller um, just a little bit more community than I'm looking for um, all the perks are nice you know like the on-site gym and the pool like those are nice to have and of course like the maintenance that we talked about earlier um, but again, just having your own place that you don't have to worry about loud people above you or 
someone complaining that you're being too loud or in your own or in your own space <laughs> right exactly yeah so so that's a good thing and i use the same builders because my parents actually built their new home um in north carolina so um we just happened to use the same builders and that was nice too and now you're close to family too and now i'm close to family Relatively. Yeah. i'm actually closer to them now or that I will be once I officially move in than I am where I currently am. So when are you going to start accepting visitors? <laughs> um, as soon as I get moved in, I, I officially move all my stuff in this Saturday. Um, I have nice. some friends helping me and I have a U-Haul and we're going to get everything moved in. However, I came into a little bit of a speed bump because since it's new construction, and no one's lived there before my internet service provider has to run all the internet lines however due to covid they are not entering any homes at this moment so um they don't even they gave me like a placeholder date for when they're going to do it but they don't even know when they're even going to be able to come out so wow i i might have to figure that out i don't know leave my computer or something in my apartment because i'm going to have the apartment until the end of august sure so it's gonna be nice be interesting to i don't know i guess i'll have to keep my my apartment as like a little office play games record podcast and then a little get away yeah your second home (laughs) that's cool well i wish i could be there to help you move out i know that can be kind of taxing sometimes but um yeah again just wanted to recognize it for anyone who's listening and Big step. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so moving on, uh, episode seven and eight of the last dance, at least to me seemed like really to be getting at the driving force behind the reason this documentary was made. Um, that was really to me, at least kind of Michael Jordan wanting to, in a way, explain his behavior in the past. Um, did, did you kind of get that sense too, Kyle? Yeah, I, I took seven and eight of the last dance to be kind of what basketball fans wanted from like this whole project. How you said we kind of, we get to look into kind of the vulnerable side of Michael Jordan. And then we get like a ton of practice Mm -hmm. footage. We get like the extended look into his final years of the bulls. I think, I think this night of the last dance has been the best yet yeah for sure i I think episode seven also seemed to carry a lot more weight than episode eight because it really got to it was for one definitely the more emotional i think of all the episodes um like i've never really seen michael get emotional besides you know the famous picture of him crying over his first ring Mm -hmm. um and talking about his father but i thought it was interesting that another thing that evoked those tears was like really being vulnerable about not only the way he acted towards other players, but uh, like, it's obvious that he really took to heart some of the criticism he's received for being kind of ruthless, relentlessly um, kind of digging into his teammates. And at the end of the episode, you sort of see him ask for a break. I thought it was really powerful. Right. Yeah. And I think, um, like you said, the first hour or half hour, I should say, um, or so of episode seven is definitely the heaviest part of the last dance though. So far, 
Um, Definitely. You mentioned they went into like the murder of his dad and how that, you know, ultimately impacted his decision to retire and play baseball. Um, and I, and we kind of talked about that on the last recording, whether they were going to talk about his father's death and how that kind of impacted him. And, um, they did. Yeah. Yeah. I was about to say that they almost like acknowledge some of the conspiracies that you and I kind of tossed around in the last episode mm-hmm. in a way that definitely, um, they, they, those conspiracies obviously weren't well received at the time. And then you see the, them going back, these documentarians and still getting pretty strong negative responses from most people. Yeah. And it seems like the theory that gets addressed, um, I think that was the most popular one or the more popular one. And it seems like in the grand scheme of things, a little bit less, salacious I guess is a good word is which is like the secret suspension conspiracy yeah and like pretty much which I'd actually never heard of I get yeah essentially the people just theorized that Jordan was suspended by David Cern in the league for like the whole 1993 season which yeah. why I took off those 18 months to play baseball due to due to some of the gambling concerns mm-hmm. um, but it was cool to see David Stern very vehemently deny that and a lot of other people kind of felt the same way um but yeah i guess really the first half of the episode was about his retirement and sort of his like transition to baseball and i gotta imagine like how impactful that retirement must have been to american culture yeah well i was remember or i was remember i was thinking whenever um i was watching that and i think it was what is her name? Andrea. Andrea Kramer. Kramer. Yeah. She was talking about how it kind of took an impact on media and everyone was kind of watching. And that reminded when me and you actually were together, when we watched LeBron's decision. Yeah. Like pretty much it was a whole like pretty vividly nationwide thing. Like everyone was t- tuning into LeBron's decision on whether he's going to go to Miami or stay in Cleveland. And it kind of rang, uh, true to this situation as well. It seemed like, yeah, for sure. It was one of those things. I think she even said it's like you you remember the day that where you were the day that MJ retired. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't say I've ever had a career decision like that be such a monumental moment where I like remember where I was. Like I remember the day Kobe died. I know I remember where I was then. I remember the day Michael Jackson died. I remember what happened that day and when I found out. But for someone just a professional athlete to retire is pretty crazy. Oh yeah. Um, but I, I was trying to think, like, I don't think I've ever, I don't think there's anyone whose retirement had the same magnitude that his did. Um, I mean, one recent one that comes to mind is Andrew Luck retiring from the Colts just because of his incessant injuries, or even like Calvin Johnson had kind of similar reasons, but I don't think anything even, those kind of pale in comparison to MJ. Yeah, it seems like all the greats of their sports now are retiring just because they're getting older and it's like no one's surprised about that it's like okay tom brady sure he might retire this year or whatever but he's been in the league for 20 years or whatever and um you know gronkowski retired but now he's back so that doesn't really count sure yeah i guess gronk was one of those ones but that surprised me but even then you know you'd heard rumors yeah it wasn't like this big uh, press for, thing it was just right he tweeted something or something like that mm-hmm um yeah and then so besides that i think a a big part of episode seven was also his 
kind of foray into baseball, which was something his father had always wanted him to get involved with. Um, and I thought it was really interesting to see how he brought that same Michael Jordan-esque dedication and hard, hard like work and work ethic to baseball that made his legacy so famous in basketball. Well, I, for some reason, I don't know why I remember just that he was not very good at baseball. I don't know why I remember like he, like people kind of joke, like he left, you know, was an embarrassment or whatever for baseball. But like this kind of showed that his brief baseball career was actually kind of incredible. Like he, he hit 202. He, I think he's, he hit 51 home runs, stole 30 bases and all that like was in 119 games. Yeah, and I think they said he he rattled off like a 13 game hitting streak or something like that. Yeah. And then people figured out that he couldn't hit breaking balls, but yeah, nonetheless, even just the physical transformation how his physical his personal trainer was basically like it's going to be hard to come back to a basketball body and he was like I don't care, like I'm going to transform into a baseball player. Right. And and especially doing all this after not playing baseball since he was what in high school right so and i mean you think about the transition to another sport so i mean there have been players who have successfully done it like deon sanders bo jackson who successfully managed both sports at the same time um Mm -hmm. but if you take somebody like tim tebow for instance who was playing professional football kind of in and out of the league for a few years uh he made his transition to baseball and it was still pretty interesting but like he's you know, you don't hear about Tim Tebow getting called up to the Mets anytime soon. Um, right. But actually, you know, what's, what's kind of funny about MJ was the fact that they had to start him out in double A because they couldn't handle the size of like the media crowds <laughs> right. that would just follow him around. Right. Yeah. That's pretty intense. But... And it probably doesn't help if you're having like a, a cold streak in baseball to have people watching your every move in a double A game. Right. Well, even in, and I think in episode eight is when they talk about Space Jam, but even in the movie Space Jam, they kind of paint him as a poor baseball player. Like the catcher would talk to them and he would like tell him what pitches are coming and um, they kind of painted right. his baseball career kind of negatively in that movie, but I guess he was okay with it. Yeah, I guess, I mean, it kind of makes sense sort of as like a storytelling device in that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was sort of meta to see all these kind of events transpiring in the episode before Space Jam. Yeah. Um, but the one the one thing that did surprise me, it was kind of just a cool, I guess not you wouldn't really call it a cameo, but Terry Francona was his minor league baseball manager at the time. <laughs> right, yeah, I forgot about that. It's pretty cool. And I think he was a manager for your Red Sox at one point too, wasn't he? Yes, yeah, they won a World Series, or two World Series with him in uh, 2008 and 2012. That's right. Maybe uh, MJ taught him a thing or two. (laughs) That'd be nice. (laughs) Did you see Um, the, um, so in terms of, um, I don't, is is the Scott Burrell story in episode seven? uh, Yes, I think it was, because episode seven was where they really kind of went all in on painting this picture of how ruthless he was and how he would single people out. Yeah. I think, you know, finally after like numerous clips that we've seen in the last dance of MJ, like dunking on 
um, Scott Burrell verbally um, like abusing him. <laughs> you could say like we. Fi- it seems like we finally got a little bit of redemption for Mr. Burrell, um, where they kind of added that in, and I thought it was kind of good for him because he was kind of getting joked upon the whole documentary, and we finally get to see where he um, did well. But it also it kind of shined light, like you said, um, where we kind of saw the worst of Michael Jordan kind of going after people on the practice court. Sure. And to me, like, I don't, I don't feel like MJ really has anything to apologize for mm-hmm. when it comes to this. Cause you know, maybe they didn't, they didn't document all of his worst moments on the practice court, but like in the high school wrestling room, even when I was, doing like high school sports or even like on the track field sometimes you'd say some pretty like abrasive things to your teammates yeah um and none of them really struck me as too you know caustic or really like like trying like trying to hurt the teammates it's like you could tell he was like trying to get something out of them mm-hmm. um but you still saw his teammates at some points characterizing they're like was he a good guy well no like pretty blat- like blatantly just making that declaration. Yeah, and he even talks about Scott Burrell talks about how Michael tried to lift guys to his level. Um even if Jordan didn't fully kind of understand that no one else could actually get to that level. He still kind of pushed people and had that same expectation for himself. Right. And it, if anything, it was done in almost a compassionate way where Michael was like, you know, I basically suffered for the first 10 years of my career where I was getting bodied around and taken out by the same teams and, you know, going through his like ankle injury. And he's like, I, I'm doing this because I don't, I want to prepare them for what's ahead because I know how hard it is to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's interesting, even though all these kind of character judgments are made against him, that his teammates at the end of the day, at the end of this episode of the documentary, are basically able to reconcile with all of the behavior that they at least witnessed and look back on him still saying that he's a good teammate. Yeah, and that kind of goes towards what someone mentioned before, how he would kind of make things up. I think Aman Rashad said that. <laughs> yeah. To like get mad and... And I think one of my favorite Jordan stories so far is the LeBradford Smith one. Totally. Where he put up 37 on the Bulls and Jordan apparently made up that Smith told him good game. And then the next night after good that. Good game, Mike. Yeah. Some, yeah mm-hmm. He just like, Jordan made it his sole mission to pretty much embarrass Smith and said he's going to get the same amount of points he scored in the first half. He got uh, pretty damn close. Yeah. But, you know, it seemed Jordan, you know, was I mean the word that comes to me is like a psychopath but in I guess like the best possible way <laughs> yeah in the least like amount of danger to society right because he used it to simply you know try to beat people mercilessly in sports and, and I guess cards too sure I feel like that's not none- yeah cards too golf <laughs> yeah. uh, throwing quarters at the wall mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, I feel like that's not a, like a super uncommon tactic to invent stories, but to do so in such a public light yeah. was, was pretty incredible. And obviously the LeBradford Smith one was one that left such a lasting impression on, I think Michael Wilbon was another one who was talking about it and Ahmad Rashad. Um, mm-hmm. 
but yeah, just a really cool entrant entrant or uh, entry into his like legacy. Yeah, and and if you if you were not an elite player and you spoke out to Michael Jordan during a playoff series, I'm not really sure what your end game is. Like with right. Nick Anderson, BJ Armstrong, and just like uh, even Gary Payton. Oh yeah, Gary Payton. That comes in episode eight. Um, it's just like. And everyone has the same reaction. Like someone will talk trash right. to him, and their teammate will be like, "Well, why'd you do that?" Right. Or like a reporter's like, "I just remember thinking, here we go." Like, yeah. You know. And I guess you reacting in the moment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But like, he, 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 there's like a clear track record of it not going well for the people who do that. Yeah, and as that LeBradford Smith story shows, Jordan, you know, he he makes up motivation all on his own, and you don't need to make yourself the target of his his rage, I guess. And I guess the good news for Nick Anderson is that the Magic were actually the better team in 1995, and they were actually able to beat right. the Bulls. But in in Game Two after he stole the ball from Jordan to kind of seal game one and said, you know, what do you say? Like 45 isn't 23 or something. Right. And it's just like, I appreciate, you know, your gumption, Mr. Anderson. And, and I think it's a cool quote that we were able to get from him, but like let Penny and Shaq do the talking. I don't, right. like, you don't need Nicholas to, Grant. <laughs> yeah, you don't need to bring like, that attention on yourself. Like, who are you? Right. That would be like Pascal Siakam, like trying to talk trash on Kevin Durant and Steph <laughs> and Clay after they win, right? Their their, their title. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, one thing that I didn't realize, and that doesn't really affect his legacy for me, but just wasn't something I knew, was that he I didn't know he played in those '95 playoffs against the Magic. I yeah, I thought he'd taken like two whole years off. Yeah, I don't and think came I ever, back the next season. Yeah, I don't think I ever realized how long or how short his break was I, I just knew he took a break played baseball came back i think took another break and then came back again um for the wizards yeah, I just, for the wizards yeah i didn't know that time um in between but i guess i mean 18 months is a long time like you said for for any professional sure. athlete to be out plus move their body into a different shape is is pretty impressive yeah i do think i was like kind of analyzing the way that he announced his retirement and they they called this press conference and jerry reinsdorf basically you know break kind of breaks the ice at first and then michael gets his turn and he says i may come back and play again someday i i just don't know and that seemed Mm -hmm. very uncharacteristic of most retirement announcements i've i've seen right and to me, like if I was a fan at the time, there would be no doubt in my mind that he'd come back. I, I don't know. I just thought it was like a weird way to enter into retirement, just leaving that door open. Right. I guess with all the emotions that were going on, like he took the retirement, I guess a step away because of his dad. Cause he, it seemed like he was able to play baseball because as he mentioned, you're with your team. You're like, on the road all the time you're kind of distracted one of the guys yeah you're kind of distracted most of the time but whenever he came back to basketball having that connection with his dad um 
I guess that kind of brought back memories and kind of reminded him of that. And honestly, like I said, one of the most emotional scenes for me was where after um, the Father's Day championship win, where he was just like oh, yeah. laying on the floor crying in the locker room. Yeah. That's, that, that was intense. Pretty heart-wrenching because um, you don't see mo- like most anybody cry like that over anything. And you can just tell how much it was affecting him to not have his dad there. Um, but man, yeah, what a fitting way to win. I think it was his fourth championship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then they broke out the whole don't mean a thing without the ring merch. Right. Um, yeah. That was cool. Plus it's like yeah, it was- kind of, like kind of badass that the bulls were wearing this stuff like during the playoffs as right. like they would have like been laughed at forever if they hadn't won or something. Sure. Yeah. I think there's a pretty noted difference between that dynasty and the warriors dynasty and that when the warriors had their 73 and nine season, it seemed like they were like, I feel like in the press, I don't really remember now looking back whether or not the express said something akin to it doesn't mean a thing without the ring mm-hmm. um but they seemed like so content at the end after the end of season after going 73 and 9 and you know it was a stretch when people didn't think they were going to make it but it seemed like that was their sole goal you could tell that the bulls just had that clear goal in mind which was their 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 championship ring right yeah that was cool and uh is this do you want to talk about Gary Payton? Yeah, we can talk about the glove. <laughs> the glove. Yeah, I think, you know, I think Gary Payton's cool. I think he is, like, the only, he's, like, the one person who can legitimately say, you know, I did a pretty good job checking Michael Jordan. Oh, for sure. And yeah, his breakdown of how he guarded Jordan was 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 funny. Um, cause it kind of had MJ laughing while he was watching it. Right. Um, of course. I mean, of course MJ's going to laugh, but, mm-hmm. uh, and he almost made it seem like he let him do that so he could win on father's day. Right. Uh, but you know, Gary Payton was, uh, a pretty renowned two way player, probably more renowned for his defensive skills and his awesome offensive abilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I think what was really interesting about Gary Payton is MJ, I think said, and I wasn't sure if it was the same episode, but he said, like, you better not talk trash. Like, it's easy to talk trash when you're up. Like, a real man talks trash when it's, like, a tie game or if they're, like, losing. And I feel like Gary Payton, his trash talk has never stopped. Yeah. Yeah. And this is actually, we've had, this is our second Gary Payton cameo. He was in the Rodman episode. And I don't remember that. Yeah, and both included lots of lots of swearing while he pretty much gave I, I think it was a pretty legitimate insightful analysis that he was able to give into the game. Like you said, he was a great two way player and um the way he was kind of able to be a really strong defender was something that I don't think was very popular at that time. That there didn't seem to be a lot of defense but sure and i mean if you think about the team it was it seemed a lot 
like it was really Gary Payton and Sean Kemp. Yeah. Um, I can't really recall what other players were on the team at the time. Legalized Kemp. That was a <laughs> yeah, an elite fan sign. Yeah. And extremely on brand for the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd say so. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty, bef- pretty before, like ahead of its time, I'd say. Given that this was like the mid '90s, right? Yeah, and, um, and that whole deal with George Carl at the restaurant. Yeah, it's like these people just are walking right into his trap. <laughs> right. I mean, even B.J. Armstrong like claimed he knew how to play Michael and the Bulls. But if that was like truly the case, you would think that he would have known not to provoke him. Right. He's like, I know how to play him on the court, but apparently he didn't understand the trash talk portion of it. Mm-hmm. Stupid George Carl. Not only for that, but also for not letting Gary Payton guard him one-on-one. Oh, right. Is he even coaching anymore? Or, or were you talking about the dinner thing? I'm talking about, yeah, both. One, he okay. didn't put Gary Payton on Michael Jordan. And that why are you pissing off Michael Jordan at a restaurant? Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, sorry for all you Sonics fans back then. But, you know, I'm sure those moments were infuriating. Yeah, I would have been pretty pissed too. But I do think that one of one of the weirdest elements of this entire project and I don't think this is necessarily a critique um, is that everything you see is essentially what Michael Jordan wants you to see. A hundred percent. And there are obvious like upsides to this, you know, namely that like Jordan is like he's a funny guy, all of his like trash talk and telling people to go home and feed their cats. And like his highlights are like so good to watch. But the downside is that the documentary does sometimes feel like they're only getting close to capturing like this essence of Jordan before the brakes get pumped. If that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was alluding to or like near the beginning of the episode is like, it's becoming clear why this documentary was made and it was almost apologistic in a way well maybe well maybe not apologetic but like more of a vessel for MJ to say his piece about why he did what he did and try to kind of maybe find some closure there mhm yeah. yeah um yeah. but but i would agree like it, it's very much what michael wants you to see although in the last episode we talked about how he hasn't used his like editorial power thus yet thus far um but nonetheless, I'm sure he has some sort of like editorial say in like what clips are shown or how the story's presented. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's hard. And I, I think that the bar that ESPN kind of set for these types of monster docu series, um, I think, is the five-part O.J. Simpson series that they had a few years ago. And comparatively, The Last Dance doesn't. It just does not explore the space it's given as well as the. Um, OJ made in America one did sure um, but like, again having said that you know you kind of see you know Jordan's like like a armor of immortality I saw it written it kind of cracks every now and then and I think it's still it's still entertaining to see and to watch and having him reveal some emotions 
that he seems hesitant on to sometimes like let bubble to the surface. I think it was really good to watch. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm not like I really appreciate that as an MJ fan to see him being so vulnerable and yet sometimes admitting his own faults. Right. Yeah. Um, at the same time, however, I don't really f- feel like we can let him off too much because we've seen people win at the highest level without being as ruthless as he's been portrayed you know like lebron even though it took him a while ended up winning some championships you don't hear stories about him being a nightmare teammate um mm-hmm. wayne gretzky who's like the nicest guy in hockey winning i think four stanley cups so there's there's definitely like it, he has his method but it's not the perfect method i'd say yeah 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 and i think that I think the far more interesting moment and I think one of the more purest like moment of Michael Jordan that we get in this entire documentary so far besides all the emotional roller coaster that came with his dad's death was is the final scene of episode seven in which Jordan is pretty much moved to tears based on like the mere suggestion that anyone would not play the game of basketball with the same drive and intensity that he would. And I think that was 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 really nice to finally see that mask of his start to slip. And then occasionally we've yeah. seen him like he'll catch it, you know, before before like his internal desire to like to be this alpha dog to like comes through. You kind of see how this kind of breaks through that. Which is cool. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and again, we don't, you know, and his brain, I think, is wired in in an interesting way that, again, most people do not have that in them to be this hyper competitive person and to like he won at literally every level of basketball he ever played. Yeah, and you know, like halfway through high school he was on he wasn't even on his team's varsity mm-hmm. basketball team yeah and he, he was already considered the best player ever after only playing like nine eight nine seasons in the sure NBA. and i think at that point not having won a championship right yeah yeah and yeah jordan is they kind of paint him as like Jordan is this immortal person, you know, because, because he is the greatest basketball player ever, according to the documentary. And that legendary drive led him, you know, winning six championships. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, I mean, and there's only the, yeah. the, the debate goes on and on about, the greatest basketball player ever. And it's hard to argue with anything besides MJ right. after watching this. And it's interesting because there's no, like there's no separating Michael Jordan, you know, the basketball player from Michael Jordan, the person or Michael Jordan, the businessman, like there's only Michael Jordan, this cutthroat. That's true. Ruthless icon who took over the the world essentially. Right, like at least he's consistent with his attitudes and with the way he approaches interactions with others, and, and he's just consistent across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, say, like a LeBron, 
has his personality on and off the court. Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe that's the reason he'll never be held in as quite a high regard as MJ is, especially amongst, I guess, like an older generation. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's impossible to understand, you know, what it's like to be Michael Jordan. And I think he even mentioned that in a few episodes ago, how, you know, people, everyone wants to be Michael Jordan, but he was, he mentioned like most people wouldn't last like a month or something. I forget exactly right. what the conversation was, but mm-hmm. it's tough. He's just like, you know, people might criticize me, but that's you. You never want anything. <laughs> right. I thought that was a pretty good one liner. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of our favorite basketball movies, they covered kind of the production of space jam in episode two. Mm-hmm. What did you think of that? I didn't realize how, I guess I should have known his training schedule was intense, but to yeah, like film true. all day and then to play like these pickup games with all these stars and they kind of, you know, they had to come to him. They all flew out to his Jordan dome. They sure. Kinda, they named it and that was kind of cool. And, to see space jam like we talked about it and we we really enjoy that movie it's on our top list of basketball movies and movies in general um it was cool to see that how it came to be and the the cgi of the monstars was really cool yeah just to see a little behind the scenes with something i'd never seen before yeah they didn't really talk about why it was made um yeah because if you think about it, it's a pretty like novel pretty out of left field concept yeah and he just happened to do it like just over one summer right like, when he came back from retirement right just kind of popped out of nowhere it seemed like i do feel like you know we've now got the monte carlo scrimmage that is part of michael jordan lore we now have these like space jam games that went on i mm-hmm. feel like espn is now obligated to air those yeah, like full like, on. Yeah, just like ed- mm. edit the tapes, get them ready for TV, and like turn off whatever like Korean baseball is going on right, <laughs> right now, and like let us watch the Monte Carlo scrimmage and the Space Jam tapes. Right. Yeah. And it was funny because I mean, even speaking to his raw competitiveness, he everyone thought they were having fun just playing the pickup games, but he was actually using these games as scouting seeing sneaky, how sneaky yeah how people's game was going on and and all that stuff and his trainer of course you know he mentioned how normally people take the time off and jordan said he would start the very next day after the season ended right so. also his his best friend i guess this is his best friend one of his friends yeah is that self-declared or the uh, like are we thinking of this the, the assistant dude the white dude yeah with the mustache yeah yeah <laughs> i was like wait a second i was like did michael jordan subtitle this or did you just declare yourself his best friend right yeah i i never knew this guy existed and if i knew he'd existed this is not who i thought it would be yeah um, absolutely not but i guess this is michael jordan's best friend interesting very interesting yeah, I, I mean, maybe it's like, you know, I was expecting maybe somebody like a Rich Paul yeah. to a LeBron James. Mm-hmm. 
but like to hear this guy talking about intimate <laughs> moments in MJ's career would just seem so bizarre to me. Yeah, he's. I guess he's been around for a while, but I've I've never seen him before. Maybe I I don't know if you caught him. He he wasn't a few clips walking around with Michael, um, like after games and things like that. It's kind of hard to tell because he's aged so much and he mm-hmm. he has like a different haircut. But he he was there nonetheless. Huh. Yeah. Good for him. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> and then I thought it was funny that I don't know if you caught it was um. Judd Butchler, is that how you pronounce his last name? Yes, but B- B- Bushler, I think. Bushler. He has during his interview, I I was very distracted by one, his watch. Yes, I saw that too. And two, like his apartment is just like this penthouse, which I assume is New York. Or I yeah. guess it should be Chicago. Chicago, maybe, yeah. But he just has like this very nice apartment and a very nice watch on. I was like, oh well, this guy for only playing four seasons in the NBA is sure. doing pretty well for himself. Yeah, I mean, he must... Maybe he has somebody managing his money. I don't know. But he, I agree. Like He looked like he had the more opulent apartment out of yeah. the <laughs> gang of MJ's former teammates. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't even... I think Scottie Pippen's interview was just like a photo drop. It didn't look right. like it was like a live thing. Sure. And Rodman looked like it might have been like a Vegas hotel room, which would be <laughs> fitting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How did you feel about that? Um, uh, we're on forty-one minutes right now, but we'll try to wrap it up. Um, no worries. Steve Steve Kerr's kind of altercation with MJ. Um, it it's actually I, I was kind of expecting to get maybe more details behind the story because it's a story I've read about before um but i guess you know in in those instances especially when things get heated there's a tendency for stories to differ in a pretty large way Mm -hmm. uh in their retelling but i think they both told their bits pretty honestly because there was a lot of consistency between the two um and i believe steve kerr when he says that like michael respected him after that yeah do you (laughs) (laughs) It seems like from the way MJ was kind of telling it was he, it almost seems like he was forced to like make up with Steve Kerr. Like Phil Jackson like told him to call him and to apologize. But yeah, it didn't seem like he truly meant it, but maybe he did. Sure. I mean, apologies are always a bit better face to face. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, um, but yeah, I mean, Kurt, Steve Kerr definitely isn't one of the more physically dominating members of those latter half of the '90s teams, like teammates of Michael Jordan. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, the thing that I reacted to even probably more strongly than that was the retelling of how Scottie Pippen uh, didn't come, didn't like participate in the last play against. I forget who it was that they were playing when they weren't playing with MJ. Who the other player was? When when they essentially drew up a play for Tony Kukoc to oh, yeah. and like a like to basically win the game. And Scotty, and Scotty like refused to come off the bench. Mm-hmm. Um I reacted more strongly to the fact that in the present day, Scotty Pippen 
like sort of felt bad about that, but then was like, I wouldn't change anything if I were to go back and do it again. Yeah, that kind of wiped away everything he just said before that. Right, 100%. Because it's like, if you truly feel that way and you know that you're going to make Bill Cartwright cry, <laughs> <laughs> like, then if you truly regret it, you would you would change it looking back on it. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I thought that was weird. Yes. Um, Scotty Pippen... I don't quite know how I feel about him yet. Um, great player, but it seems like when like Michael definitely seemed to keep him disciplined when he was around, right. but as soon right. as he left, he kind of took on a little bit more of an ego. It seemed like. Yeah, I guess it's hard not to. I guess someone has to step up. Yeah. It's hard not to be playing in, in MJ's shadow for so long, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they even said he was no MJ. He was kind of like the older brother, kind of sheltering players or trying to comfort them when things went wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and he even looked a little bit more at ease when he was kind of the alpha. Right. Um, but I'd say across his interactions on the show, on The Last Dance, they've seemed if you were kind of use one word to embody the tone it would be resentful maybe mm-hmm. um which just seems weird i mean him and mj don't have the best off the court relationship now so i guess that has something to do with it too yeah huh. oh i just quickly did a a google search for judd butchler bushler however you want to pronounce it and um, he played basketball at the University of Arizona. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he was uh, 1990 draft, but he is now. That apartment was in New York. He is now one of the assistant coaches for the Knicks. Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah, his mug with those glasses is somewhat recognizable. Like I'm sure I've seen him on a bench somewhere. Yeah, so shorter, shorter NBA career. Um, only averaging six points, one assist, and two and a half rebounds per game, but seems to be doing pretty well for himself. He's got three rings, man. Yeah. It's hard to argue with that. Right. Well, did you have any final words? We are, um, we're wrapping up the last dance next weekend. It's going to be episode nine and episode 10. Um, you know any anything that you haven't seen that you want to see or how do you think this is i mean we know how it's going to end but anything you're looking forward to um definitely excited to see more of the matchup with the indian pacers um reggie miller is pretty big character so it'll be interesting to see his retelling of it Mm -hmm. um and yeah i mean i'm not looking forward to it being over it's given us kind of a respite from the lack of sports that's kind of embodied this coronavirus outbreak. And, uh, you know, I'm sure I'll, I'll rewatch these at some point, but I'm definitely relishing these last two episodes. And uh, I'm, I'm wondering if they'll go into sort of like the Washington Wizard days as well. So, we'll oh, see. yeah, that'd be interesting. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, I, um, yeah, I've, like you said, just been enjoying kind of the journey of, learning and understanding the ins and outs of Michael Jordan and 
and all that stuff and seeing the final the last dance season or whatever is gonna be pretty cool and certainly yeah. a good a good filler for the lack of everything that's going on right now yeah and uh and yeah we'll have to wait to see the next documentary yeah which hopefully would be a kobe documentary yeah 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 we haven't seen a lot of kobe during the last dance which was a little bit surprising to me we had like one interview yeah i feel like when they were promoting the show even before kobe's death uh they almost billed him as like a pretty large participant so it was odd yeah like weren't the lakers a pretty dominant force in the 90s we we didn't see them at all in it in any of the playoffs well i guess we're watching the eastern conference yeah I think they were, I mean, Kobe didn't get in the league until 96, I think. Oh, okay. Something like that. So it was definitely in the, like the tail end of those three-peats. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm guessing they must have lost to the Jazz at some point, especially in the 98 season. Because I think the next season was when the Lakers uh, won their first of two back-to-back. Hmm. Okay. Well... Anywho, that's going to wrap it up for our recap of The Last Dance, episode 7 and 8. Um, again, send your feedback, questions to us at C2C Podcasting on Twitter or at anchor.fm slash coastpodcast. Um, we have some topics that we want to talk about that we'll probably break out maybe next week. We've been doing a lot of exclusive like deep dive episodes of things, whether it's The Last Dance or Westworld. We haven't actually had the opportunity to do our traditional like two to three topic episodes. Um, we'll probably get back into that after the last dance finishes just because we want to spend so much time doing this. But send topics you want us to talk about to those addresses earlier. And don't forget to subscribe and to share. And for now, we will talk at you next time. See you then. Bye.